Please open your Bibles to Matthew 22. Our text this morning is found in Leviticus, but first I'd like to turn to Matthew 22. And as you know, we are now uh, entering into week six of an eight-week sermon series on the issue of sin and sanctification and salvation, how do Christians deal with their sin. And for the first five weeks, we focused exclusively on our relationship to our own sin. What do we do about it? We need to be confessing it, speaking truly about it. We need to deal with it and, and make sure that the sorrow we feel bears the fruit of godly sorrow to repentance and salvation. That the active process of change involves taking off old behavior, putting on new Christ-like behavior while being renewed in our minds. We saw the role that the Word plays in that, and last week we saw the role of our relationship with the Lord. We need to be seeing His glory, seeing His beauty. Well, this week, we sort of turn the corner. Now, what beyond our responsibility for ourselves, what is our responsibility to our neighbor? As a body, as a family, as a tightly knit unit, what is our responsibility in regards to sin to one another? And so in Matthew 22, verses 35 to 40, I think we'll see how this sort of ties together. We'll get our marching orders from here. Starting in 34, actually. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. And you can sort of think of the first five weeks of our series as focusing on the first half, loving the Lord our God with all our heart and our soul and our mind and strength as we want to con be conformed to the image of Christ, as we want to be pleasing to him, as we want to repeat what he says after him in confession, as we want to align our will and our hearts through repentance with his, as we want to change into his image. But Jesus lists a second commandment, the second great commandment, which is to love your neighbor as yourself. And so on this hinge then, on this axis, we move now to think about the rest of the body. And, and if you've missed some of the weeks, I'd encourage you to go back. Uh, these, these eight weeks build upon each other. And there may be crucial information or points made previously that I'm going to largely assume upon in today's message. And, and Jesus here in giving the first and second great commandments, especially the second great commandment, you would think that this is one of the points with which our culture could agree. Loving your neighbor as yourself. We all know Jesus said some hard things, but we don't generally think this is one of them. This notion of love, loving your neighbor, loving the world is, is very popular in the world. The title of this morning's message, What's Love Got to Do With It? Um, getting to the heart of the second greatest commandment. If I go even back even further than, than Tina Turner to Diana Ross, 1965. <laughs> what the world needs now is love, sweet love, 
It's the only thing that there's just too little of. What the world needs now is love, sweet love, not just for some, but for everyone. And we'd think, amen. On this point, the culture, the Christian, are agreed. But I want to turn back. Jesus is actually quoting a text. He's quoting Leviticus 19. And if you turn in your Bibles back to Leviticus 19, I think we'll see that what Jesus has in mind, what the Bible has in mind, what the Bible means by love is probably something a bit more robust and at times challenging than our culture. I want you to stop and think, how would you define what is love? How do you know what love is? And I think most of us, if we're not careful, just assume that we just all intuitively know what love is. Love is that nice, warm feeling I feel when other people do nice things to me. The problem is that would also mean that flattery is love, wouldn't it? Love can't be defined by my experience because you could be flattering me and I'd feel good and it wouldn't be love. No, as if we've learned already, we've got to let Scripture inform our definitions. We've got to let Scripture inform what we mean by love. And in Leviticus 19, the Lord God, giving the law to Israel, says this in two powerful verses. 17 and 18. You shall not hate your brother in your heart. But you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. There it is, two verses. But I think if we come at this text, we can start to figure out, both positively and negatively, what is meant by love here. I think oftentimes what our culture means when it calls love is nice. You can sort of redefine the Beatles anthem, all you need is nice, right? Because that's mostly what we mean, non-judgmental, accepting, tolerant, welcoming, nice. And there's room for Christians to be nice, but don't mistake love for nice or nice for love. Here in Leviticus 19, As we get to the heart, and remember, Jesus quotes this, and his audience would be familiar with it. So it's it's inconceivable to me that he, in quoting Leviticus 19, means something fundamentally different than what it means in Leviticus 19. And as we think about that whole put-off, put-on correlation, let's look at what this passage gives as the put-offs and what this passage gives as the put-ons. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, okay? You shall reason frankly with your neighbor. Now, some of your translations might say you shall rebuke or reprove your neighbor openly. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge. There's another put off. But you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So let's let's group this together. What are we to put off? We're to put off hatred. We are to put off vengeance and grudge bearing. What are we to do? We are to reason frankly to reprove, to rebuke our neighbor, we are to love them as ourself. You're beginning to see in this context what the primary, in the context of Leviticus 19, application, demonstration of love is. 
It's, it's, the, it's the loving corrective work. It's the loving confrontation. It's the loving reproof that we do to our neighbor out of love instead of becoming angry, instead of grudge-bearing, instead of gossiping. I think the heart of the second commandment, loving your neighbor as yourself, is confrontation. And, and let me take that word. I chose confrontation. The, the blanks for all three main points will be confrontation. And I don't mean by that what maybe you're thinking, which is the big showdown, that big epic moment that happens, God willing, never. Most two or three times in your life, and you sort of show up, and there's, there's yelling, and there's raised voices. I just mean the corrective work that takes place in relationships. I mean by confrontation, correction, reproof. I mean the coming alongside someone saying, hey, hey, you, you missed a button there. Hey, you've got some cream cheese on your mustache. That, that's what I mean. So don't think of the big epic showdown. I'm talking about a, a quality of relationship, a, an aspect of loving relationships. Now, I chose the word confrontation because I know it's scary, and we could choose nice words for this. We could talk about reproof, corrective. But let's just use a scary word so that we can look at it square in the face. That's a biblical word, confrontation. It doesn't have to mean yelling. It doesn't have to mean raised voices. And see how love includes this. I'm not saying this is all that love is. Certainly not. But in Leviticus 19, this is the primary demonstration. This, this act of love, of going and talking frankly, reasoning frankly, rebuking your neighbor, we're going to see is actually a guard against hatred. It's a guard for their holiness, and it's a guard for the church. So let's dive in in three points. We're going to see three things. First, the confrontation is rooted in the two greatest commandments. Confrontation is rooted in the two greatest commandments. First, notice the end of verse 18. After giving this instruction, the Lord signs off his name, I am the Lord. And in this chapter of Leviticus 19, that's pretty frequent. Verse 4 ends, I am the Lord. Verse 10 ends, I am the Lord. 12, I am the Lord. 14, I am the Lord. 16, I am the Lord. And so on. It's as though the Lord gives some more instruction, and then just in case you forgot who's talking, just in case you forgot the seriousness and the import, he signs his own name, I am the Lord. Which, of course, brings us back in our minds to the previous revelation in Exodus 20 and the Ten Commandments. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. What we've got to see is that if we're going to do this work of love to our neighbor, if we're going to lovingly correct, lovingly come alongside and, and re rebuke, deal with sin, we've got to do it first and foremost because the Lord is the Lord. Before we add any other reasons, before we add any other motives or good that can come of it, the Lord's saying, look, I'm God, you're not, obey. And when we fail to do this, um, we stop serving the Lord as Lord. Th this whole point and is very helpfully drawn out in, in Paul Tripp's book, Instruments in the Deemer's Hands. We've done a Tough Men class through this. We've done an ABF through this. And he's got a great chapter dealing with Leviticus 19, dealing with confrontation. I just want to read a quote, and I've got another quote a little later on, about this rooting in the first and greatest commandment. He says this, from God's perspective, the only reason we confront one another is that we love the Lord and we want to obey him. 
Our failure to confront one another biblically must be seen for what it is, something rooted in our tendency to run after God replacements. We confront unbiblically or not at all because we love something else more than God. We love something else more than God. And, and as we go through this, I think we'll try to look at what some of those things are, but I want you to see this rooted here in the first and greatest commandment, loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Jesus quoting this text, bringing it, as it were, into the new covenant. We, we, we need to do this, first of all, because God says so, because he's the Lord. Because we need to conform our lives, no matter how hard, no matter how difficult, to what he says. And I know this is hard. I know it's hard. I don't think it's easy for me and it's hard for you. It's, it's hard. But the starting point has got to be getting a definition of love that has room for this. I think we'll see that frequently we tend to think sometimes we're loving and sometimes we deal with sin. Sometimes we're gracious and kind and sometimes we rebuke. I hope by the end of our time this morning, um, such false splits will be eliminated. So confrontation is rooted in the first great commandment. And it's rooted in the second great commandment. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, we know Jesus quotes this, and the New Testament runs with it. Paul, in Romans 13, 9, says, The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Galatians 5, 14 the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now we can oftentimes think of that love in heroic sacrifice, and, and love can be expressed in heroic sacrifice. And we can think of that love in, in persevering, faithful, loyal love that doesn't give up on someone. That's love. But I think honestly, if you think about it, you might start to understand why I think this is sort of at the center, at least in Leviticus 19, of, of how God wants his people to express love because we don't want to do this. This probably is the hardest thing for us to do. If you had to choose between giving a large amount of money to someone who needed it or going and giving correction to someone who needed it, I'm guessing most of us would choose to go to the ATM. And so because the Lord knows it's hard, because God knows this is difficult and challenging and frightening, I think in Leviticus 19, it gets set up as the centerpiece. God knows if we will do this, we'll have a holy, peaceful body. If we won't do this, if we won't love our neighbor this way, our body will be sown with hatred and conflict, and the bride of Christ will become tarnished. So it's rooted in the first commandment. It's rooted in the second commandment. And from this, we realize then that our relationships do not exist solely for our purposes. They, like all things, belong to the Lord and exist for his glory. See, God, when he says he's Lord of all, he means he's Lord of all. Everything. Including our relationships, including our friendships. And we want to guard those, hold those off. We want to protect those. And God says, no, I'm God of your friendships. I'm God of your your." relationships. I'm God of your marriage. I'm God of your children. I am God. And I will tell you how I want you to act within your relationships. Again, Paul Tripp has a very helpful word here. You cannot love your neighbor as yourself if you do not first love God above all else. Our willingness to gossip, to live in anger, and trim the truth, some 
Time reveals something deeper than a lack of love for people. It exposes a lack of love for God. We no longer serve as his ambassadors in relationships, but use those relationships for our own purposes. They become places where our needs can be met. And then because we are afraid to lose what we crave, we live in silence as our neighbor steps outside of God's boundaries. See, rather than viewing our relationships as opportunities for us to incarnate the love of Christ, opportunities for us to serve the Lord, they become things that feed us. We, we receive blessings from relationships, and we should. That's, that's good. But when we view our relationships solely on those terms, then we start to view them as mine. They exist for me, and I'm not going to do something that would threaten that relationship. I'm not going to do something that would threaten the pleasure and the joy I get from that relationship. And to that degree... I'm worshiping and serving the thing rather than the creator. This, is, this becomes something in my life that I'm not willing to surrender to the Lord. It becomes an idol. So confrontation, we see, is rooted in the first and second commandment. And, and, and God claims dominion over our relationships. But what I want to help you see, though, is not just that the Bible says this. And we're going to see there's lots of passages that say this. But I want to try to help you see the beauty and the goodness of it. I want to help you walk by, by, by sight and by faith. So in the second point, confrontation is our moral responsibility. Confrontation is our moral responsibility. And, and here's point A, and, and really, if we get anything this morning, if you just get 2A, it is a supreme act of love, kindness, and faithfulness. It is a supreme act of love, kindness, and faithfulness. Now, those Bible references underneath there, we're going to look at every one of them. Now, if you don't want to follow along on the back of your insert, every one of those are printed out. So you can follow along in the insert, or you can follow along in your Bible. But this isn't just something rooted in some obscure text in Leviticus. This is something from cover to cover of the Bible. The Bible says, if you're willing to go in love, not in anger, but if you're willing to go lovingly, kindly, gently, but you are willing to go, then you are truly loving your neighbor. You are truly fulfilling the law of love. You are, you are acting out a height of love. Psalm 141, verse 5. Let a righteous man strike me. It is a kindness. Let him rebuke me. It is oil for my head. Let my head not refuse it. So, so get this. We, we don't get to say sometimes we're kind and we don't deal with sin in our brother because we're kind and we're, we're looking the other way and then sometimes we confront sin. This text says rebuke is kindness. Get that. That is a false dichotomy. It's a false dilemma. We've got to decide, are we going to be kind or are we going to deal with sin? No, we are kind by dealing with sin. And think about it. Think back through this series. Message number one. We saw what's at stake in believers dealing with their sin, right? My fellowship with God, my fellowship with you, and ultimately the proof of my salvation is at stake in my dealing with sin. That's an awful lot that is at stake. And for me to see someone start walking off the path, and they may not even realize it? What could be more loving than to help restore their relationship with God, than to help restore their relationships with other people, and to help them bear the fruit of their salvation? It is a 
kindness. And so when our hearts say, no, it's not, we need to repent. Because when our hearts say, no, it's not, then we are disagreeing with God. And whenever you're disagreeing with God, you're wrong. Fair enough? If you catch yourself disagreeing with God, it's not a difficult math problem, you're wrong. Let a righteous man strike me. It is a kindness. Now, this doesn't mean that every time someone rebukes, they do it kindly. Yet, yes, this can be done poorly. Yes, this can be done terribly. And I think we'll see there's reasons why frequently it is. I'm just saying, in principle, it's not that we have to choose between being kind and loving or dealing with sin. We are kind and loving by dealing with sin. And we really should pray that the Lord would give us this hard attitude that views those people that rebuke us, those people who come to us and, and correct us as our greatest friends and those who love our soul. Go to Proverbs 27, 5 and 6. Better is open rebuke than hidden love. By the way, that phrase, open rebuke, is exactly the Hebrew of Leviticus 19, the ESV translates says, reason frankly. Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Now notice that contrast. I don't think the writer of Proverbs really thinks hidden love is actually love. By calling it hidden love, what he's showing us is that frequently in the name of love, we will not deal with sin. We're going to say, see we tell ourselves, I'm going to be loving. I'm going to be loving, and so I'm not going to deal with that. He says, better is open rebuke than hidden love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. What he's saying is, if we see our brother or sister walking off into sin, if we see our brother and sister moving out of fellowship with God, out of fellowship with other believers, and we do nothing, we are acting like enemies to them. Even though we say we do it in the name of love. That's what it says. Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Let's move along to 28-23. Whoever rebukes a man will afterward find more favor than he who flatters with the tongue. By the way, notice how the Proverbs are not contrasting our other options as good things. What it seems to be suggesting is if we're not confronting, if we're not dealing with sin, then we are enemies, then we are bearing out hidden love. Here it talks about flattering, but I think it makes sense. If, if somebody showed up here, if I showed up here this morning and in getting dressed, I had a big piece of cream cheese from a bagel I had this morning on my mustache, and some of it was actually in my hair, and if I had some child vomit on my shoulder, Right? And, and you can picture this. And I'm walking around shaking hands. Good morning. How are you doing? Good morning. How are you doing? And you said, looking good, Pastor Jeremy. You're flattering me. Right? You're, you're, you're lying to me. You could tell me, like, hey, hey, you might want to go into the men's room and fix some stuff up. And if you pretend all is well, you become a flatterer. You become a hypocrite. Because what you think and what you see, you're unwilling to speak. You're unwilling to speak. I'm going to read a third and, and final quote from, from Paul Tripp before we move on to the rest of these passages, just because I think this is so helpful, the way he says it. But I want you to listen to this. A rebuke free of unrighteous anger is a clear sign of biblical love. 
But I'm afraid we have replaced love in our relationships with being nice. Being nice and acting out of love are not the same thing. Our culture puts a high premium on being tolerant and polite. We seek to avoid uncomfortable moments. So we see, but we do not speak. We go so far as to convince ourselves that we are not speaking because we love the other person when in reality we fail to speak because we lack love. The truth is that we fail to confront not because we love others too much, but because we love ourselves too much. We fear others misunderstanding us or becoming angry with us. We are afraid what others will think. We don't want to endure the hardships of honesty because we love ourselves more than we love our neighbor. You want to prove that point? Who here would hesitate? Who here would hesitate to go talk to a brother or sister in sin? If you knew for a fact, if an angel of God appeared to you, if the resurrected Lord appeared to you and said, if you'll go talk to them, They'll change, they'll repent, they'll confess, they will thank you. They'll stop suffering, they'll stop bearing my discipline. Who here would hesitate for a moment if we knew that would be the response we get? Isn't all of our language about that's unloving, that's unkind, a smokescreen to make up for the fact that we're scared? Because we wouldn't talk about that's unloving and that's unkind if we knew that would be the response. I mean, who here, if you watched... Person A, go over to person B. Hey, um, I, I noticed that lately you've been speaking in, in anger a bit. Is that something you're aware of? And person B says, well, I guess I hadn't noticed that. You're right. Thank you so much. Would you pray for me? I'm, I'm going to really redouble my efforts to speak with grace. Who here would look at that exchange and say, unloving, judgmental, That's not what Jesus would do. No, it's only because of the response we expect. It's not the response the Bible thinks we should expect. If anything, if I'm dealing with a Christian, unless I've already judged them in my heart and said, no, they're a hypocrite, I should expect they're going to thank me. I should expect I'm going to find more favor with them afterwards than if I flattered. I should expect that they're going to receive it as oil on their head as in a kindness. Why should I expect anything else, <laughs> biblically? If I'm dealing with a believer, why should I not at least go with that hope? Let's keep going. Galatians 6, New Testament now. 1 to 3. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourselves, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. See, Paul, because he's aware of what Jesus said, that the law and the prophets hang on these two words, says you can fulfill the entire law of Christ, the entire commandments of Christ. This is what he said earlier in Galatians 5, 14. If you're willing, when you see someone caught in sin, if you're willing to go help restore them, correct them, deal with that, if you can do that and then help them walk through that, you can fulfill the law of Christ. Do you see how the New Testament makes exactly the same capital on Leviticus 19 as I am? 
Fulfill the law, which is a reference to love your neighbors yourself. And if you will be willing, when you see someone who's caught, when you see someone who's in sin, to go and, and minister God's word to them and go and, and deal with them and, and help restore them, in so doing, you fulfill the law of Christ. You see that? Let's go to James 5. This is definitionally love. 5.19. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wanderings will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. Now, does that sound unloving to you? Does that sound unkind? Does that sound legalistic? Does that sound judgmental? Let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering, will save his soul from death, and will cover a multitude of sins. So why, why do we find it so hard then? If the Bible expects that Christians should be thankful when this happens, and let's be honest, that's not usually our experience. I, I think of a couple reasons why this is so hard. First, we do tend to value our relationships more than God. The thought of risking a relationship, the thought of Losing a relationship, damaging a relationship, if someone doesn't respond well, is fearful. The thought of them viewing you as judgmental, becoming angry, is fearful. And if that's the case, then we've really just got to ask the question, is it better for us to fear man or God? Is it better for us to care what you think rather than what he thinks? And then we've got to remember this command is rooted in the first commandment, I am the Lord. But there's another reason I think we may hesitate to do this, and that is because we really don't believe the gospel. Let me, let me flesh that out for you. You see, when I go in hopes, and the Lord gives me grace to go in hopes, and I, and I don't always do that, I try to remember that this is somebody who professes faith in Jesus Christ. This is someone who claims they want to follow Jesus. And there is a gospel that will enable them to change. There is a promise in 1 John 1, 9 that if they'll confess their sins, he will be faithful to forgive them and cleanse them. There's a promise that if they will bear out godly sorrow into repentance, they will be saved. There's a promise that they can be changed. We have the cure. So when we go with the diagnosis, hey, hey, I, I think you've got an infected cut, we... In our hand is the antibiotic ointment. In our hand is the gauze, right? Now, you might feel a little differently if you didn't really believe the medicine worked. They're not going to listen to me. They're never going to change. They're not going to want to hear this. So do we really believe the good news that we have? Because if we do, you start to see how this can be an act of kindness, how this can be an act of grace, 2 Timothy 2, 24 to 26 says, The Lord's slave must not be quarrelsome, but kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God will grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. We, we go in the hopes that God's spirit will work. And we overcome the fear of man with the fear of the Lord. Now, the second reason why this is our moral responsibility. The positive side is this is the act of love. This is the act by which the body cleanses itself and keeps itself pure and holy. But in doing so, it protects our hearts from hatred. We're back to Leviticus 19 now. It protects our hearts from hatred. That's what it says. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall 
Reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Protects our hearts from hatred. You know, the irony is we think we're afraid that if we go talk to someone, it will be viewed as hateful, as judgmental, when the reality is going is precisely the thing that protects us from that. And I think part of the reason here is we've got a wrong definition of hatred. The, the little box thing there, hatred is the unwillingness to help our neighbor, not primarily a desire to harm them. See, hatred biblically is not primarily, I want you to die, I want bad things to happen to you. That, that's sort of a subcategory of hatred called wrath and anger and murder. A heart of anger, a heart of murder wants harm to come. But if you think of the, the story that Jesus tells, and we won't turn there in Luke 10 of the Good Samaritan, right? When, when asked about Leviticus 19, who's my neighbor? Jesus tells this story. And who's the one who loves is the one who stops what he's doing and helps. And who are the ones who hate? They're just the ones who walk on by. They see what's happening. They see the problem. We don't know what their reasons are. We can guess them. They've got somewhere to go. They're busy. They don't want to get ceremonially unclean. They don't want to deal with a, with a foreigner. He's a Samaritan. We don't know. And they hate him. Hatred, biblically, is simply not loving. There's no third option. If you're thinking, well, I neither love my neighbor nor I hate my neighbor, I just, I, there isn't even a word. Remember what 1 John 4.20 says. 1 John 4.20, listen to this makes not love and hatred interchangeable. Interchanges them. It's the same thing. So not love is hatred. And hatred is not love. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love whom he has not seen. You see how, see how that? If anyone says he loves God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God who he has seen. Cannot love God who he has not seen. Sorry, I got that backwards. There, there is no third option. You are either actively loving or you're hating. Because remember, I'm, I'm saying the Bible defines hatred as I can't be bothered. You know, I, I don't want anything bad to happen to you. We don't know that the scribe, the priest, you know, were, were cursing the, the man on the side of the road. They just walked by. And when the Lord in his providence allows you to see sin in a brother's life, For you to walk on by and do nothing about it, you will, that is an act of hatred, and it will start bearing active and passive fruit of hatred. This passage gives us that. The blanks below lists different types of, of hatred, active and passive hatred. Under the active list is the revenge that is named. It's a form of act of hatred. Someone does something wrong, especially if it's to you, you of all people, but that's a really helpful um, um, calmer downer. My wife will throw at me sometimes if I'm driving and someone cuts me off and I say, he cut me off. Can you believe it? She said, you of all people. And it, it <laughs> helps, helps take it down a notch or two. Um, so if someone sins against me of all people um, and I don't go and talk to them while I still am calm, while I still have my wits about me, and I let sit on it and stew on it. I'll become more and more angry. I think this is one of the reasons why so much of our confrontation goes poorly. Because we're not going obediently. We're not going when we know we should. We're not going because of the first and second great commandments. We wait until we become angry enough because our will is thwarted. Because our kingdom is being frustrated. Oh yeah, big surprise, that goes poorly. 
given active forms of hatred, revenge. We're up in even 16, listing some other stuff, slander, gossip. And then there's always the passive forms of hatred, which is not actively doing something to harm somebody. It's the grudge bearing. Right there, you should not bear a grudge. Bitterness, the cold shoulder, avoidance, which according to Proverbs 27 and 28 ultimately results in hypocrisy because in your heart you think one person, thing about somebody. Oh, Bob, he's a jerk. Or Bob, he loses his temper all the time. Or he's, he's a mess or whatever. And then you see him and you're like, oh, hi, Bob. Then you go away thinking the same. You're a hypocrite. You think one thing, but your outward face is not consistent with what you inwardly think. And then you start to avoid Bob because it gets kind of uncomfortable because after all, Bob's got some problems. And we're giving in to passive hatred. I want you to think of like a highway with big ditches on either side, a raised highway. And here's this path of love right down the middle. Go love your neighbor. Go talk to them before you start becoming bitter. Go talk to them before you start avoiding them. Go, go talk to them before you start gossiping. Just, just go talk to your brother. Love him as yourself. I am the Lord. And then on one side, there's this ditch of active hatred where I'll take matters into my own hands and I'll show them or I'll tear them out or I'll go tell the whole church about it. And then the other side is, that's fine. I don't like him anyway. And just, oh, they're going to be at the new attendee fellowship. Well, I guess I'm busy or something like that. It's by going that you guard your hearts against this. You want to know the surest sign that you need to talk to somebody? You're bearing a grudge against them. You're avoiding them. You're uncomfortable around them. Remember, Jesus prayed in John 17 that the peace and the love that we had together would imitate that of the Trinity. So when I hear Christians say things like, I love them, I just don't like them, I, I try to import that into the Trinity, and it gets blasphemous really quickly. As if the father would ever say to the son, well, I love the son, but I don't like him. I mean, it's blasphemous to contemplate that. And Jesus, in his prayer, in John 17, wants our unity and our love to model the Trinity. There, there is no room in a body of Christ to be okay with, I love you, but I don't like you. Rather, we're working at it. We're getting together. We're talking. We're, we're nipping bitterness in the bud because when someone bothers us, first we deal with it ourselves. And, and I know you have questions. I know there's qualifiers. And I know there's exceptions. And next week, Pastor Daniel will deal with all of them, I promise. <laughs> now he's got something he needs to talk to me about afterwards. Um, all I'm trying to get you to see is the big picture of how this is loving and how failing to do this is really hatred. And we'll deal with this specifically. How do you do this? And what's the attitude? Because yes, you can do this wrong. Yes, you can do this poorly. I'm not saying this means that anytime someone goes and talks to somebody, it's love. What I'm saying is in principle, the willingness, the desire to obediently go and help correct someone is love. And to not do that is to allow the seeds of hatred to sow in your heart. You here's, here's the way God designed us. I can't think ill of you. I can't think there's some sin in your life that you're not dealing with and not be part of the process of restoration and not begin to judge you in my heart. Not to begin to look down on you. Go back to Galatians 6, when he says, bear one another's burdens, fulfill the law of Christ. Verse 3, 4, if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. What Paul is saying is we need to correct each other. We need to bear one another's burdens because 
If we think we're something, we're nothing, we deceive ourselves. The logic is this. What's going to stop me from entering in? What's going to stop me from coming down and, and getting, my, you know, getting my hands dirty and trying to restore you and trying to bear your burdens? I think too much of myself. I look down my nose at you. I mean, after all, why do you deal with that? That's disgusting. Why couldn't you be like me? I praise you, Lord, that I fast and I pray twice a week, not like this tax collector. And that's what we become in our hearts. That's why there's some sins people don't feel comfortable confessing in the church because Christians shouldn't struggle with drug addiction. Christians shouldn't struggle with, you know, um, drunkenness, homosexuality. They shouldn't struggle with those things because those are disgusting things. I don't struggle with those things. Please don't talk about them here. We, we think too well of ourselves. We don't realize that there but the grace of God go I. So... Confronting is a supreme act of love and kindness, and it protects our hearts from hatred. Point C, and it guards us from sharing in their sin. And this now is starting to get the corporate picture going on. We, we don't have time to go here. I'll move quickly, but you can track the references. In, in Romans 1.32, after giving a laundry list of over 27 specific sins, Paul puts the cherry on top of man's wickedness, and he says, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Worse than doing something is standing by and applauding. And the problem becomes when someone starts to sin and we stand by and do nothing, the longer we do nothing, the harder it is to do something. Because the longer you do it, you are giving tacit approval. You are giving tacit permission. And so if, if somebody for 10 years has been using coarse language and telling crude jokes, yeah, it's going to be hard after 10 years to be like, you really shouldn't do that. Because you're going to expect them to say, well, why are you suddenly saying this to me now? And, and in 1 Corinthians 5, where you've got the man having the immoral relationship with his stepmother, Paul rebukes the church for culpability. They've stood by. They haven't warned him. They haven't rebuked him. And he writes in 1 Corinthians 5, 1 to 2, it is actually reported that there's sexual immorality among you. We have a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? And then in verses 6 to 8, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? It'll spread. And so the other thing to factor in is not only is it loving, and not only does it guard against hatred, but it's a protective for the body. It guards us from sharing in their sin. If you take the time to look up Ezekiel 3, 16 and 19, the Lord warns Ezekiel, look, if I send you to the wicked man and, tell, and you tell him to repent and he doesn't repent, you're fine. But if I tell you to go and warn somebody and you don't, they will die for their sin, but their blood is on your head. And again, you say, well, that's Old Covenant. Yet Paul quotes that twice in Acts. When he's preached to the Gentiles, he says, I am free from the blood of you all. Which is to say, I have warned you. I have preached the gospel to you. If you choose to judge yourself unworthy of eternal life, the Lord will not hold me accountable for that. It is loving. It guards us from hatred, and it guards us from sharing in their sin. And, and in closing... It does have to be doing with the right motive. And I'm going to cut this short because we have communion. And because next week, Daniel, I hope, will be really unpacking this. But obviously, we don't go in anger. Obviously, we need to go because of who God is. We need to go because we believe this is loving. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's about him and it's about my neighbor. And we do it as an act of loving the church. Now, we're going to 
transition now to a time of, of communion. I know this is hard. It's one of the reasons why we've set a second week to unpack this some more, deal with questions. I just would pray that you would biblically weigh these things and see if they are so. And that the Lord would stretch and enlarge your view of what love is and guard us from hating our brother passively. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your goodness. And Lord, this is challenging. But you are God and we are not. And so you reveal your truth to us and it is up to us to conform our thoughts to your word. Lord, give us the courage and the conviction to love our brothers and sisters as you would have us love them. Give us the courage and conviction to believe your word that this is kindness, not hatred. This is mercy, not judgment. Lord, would you help us to act in faith? In Jesus' name, amen.